Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Join me, Dr. Hope Christie, as Head of Research for Tooled Up Education, as I interview today Maggie Johnson, who is co-author of the internationally acclaimed Selective Mutism Resource Manual. She is a speech and language therapist specialising in childhood communication disorders and selective mutism and the associated impact on families, schools and young children themselves. Maggie has now retired from the NHS but continues to provide training days and workshops across the UK and abroad, mainly in the area of selective mutism. She has just returned from a conference in Norway, a country which has been very active in conducting research into selective mutism. Several of their studies have demonstrated the effectiveness of Maggie's treatment approach, which is something I'm sure she's happy to see, given that she's a hands-on practitioner rather than a researcher. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you for joining us. So the first question I have for you, you'll have to excuse me as I know very little about selective mutism. So for me and for others like me who are listening, could you please describe to us what selective mutism is? Yes, sure. But could we first consider how it feels to have selective mutism? It's just that the description of it as it's described as a failure to talk. That just doesn't do it any justice. And People have said to me things like, well, I was pretty quiet at school or I was quiet when I was a child. It didn't do me any harm. So I think just thinking about how it actually is affecting the individual, it it makes such a difference. And if we want to know how it feels, then obviously you've got to ask the individuals themselves. And now young children, they don't necessarily have the vocabulary or the self-awareness to describe it. They just know they hate the feeling of, panic that comes over them when they're expected to talk to people outside this very closed circle of family and friends. But I've got together some of the things that older children and adults have said about it. Is it okay if I just read this list out? Oh, of course, please do. Thank you. Okay. You'd almost rather die than have to utter a word in front of certain people. When you're feeling so afraid of it that your whole body feels physically frozen inside, you don't want someone pushing you to talk. In the end, I was having headaches every Monday and was too scared to leave the house. No matter how much I want to talk, the words won't come out. It's like I've been robbed of the power of speech. And this is quite an unsettling one, actually. It was excruciating having people ask me why I don't speak. I used to wish I had someone sitting beside me with a gun to my head telling me not to speak so that it was obvious. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this is the last one. I never forgave my mother for not taking my side and letting all those people treat me like I was being difficult. Honestly, I hated her. 
Oh, I know. So whatever is happening to these children and young people, it's producing some incredibly powerful emotions. And it's clearly not okay to leave them struggling on their own and think, well, give them time, they're just going to get over it. So thank you for that. Yeah, let me try and explain what is happening. When people who have selective mutism try to talk, there are times when their muscles seize up and it feels like there's an actual physical blockage in their throat. What they're actually experiencing is the fight, flight, freeze response that anyone with a phobia will recognise, that you're feeling stuck in some part of your body. You've got a pounding heart, shortness of breath, a sense of dread, sometimes nausea, sometimes tension headaches. And this, in the case of selective mutism, is triggered by the expectation to talk to people outside their comfort zone. So selective mutism is officially classified as an anxiety disorder, and I believe it should be viewed as a phobia. It behaves in exactly the same way as phobias. And well, if something looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, we call it a duck, don't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, selective mutism, it certainly meets the medical criteria for phobias. You've got the same automatic panic response to a harmless trigger. The phobic situation is endured with intense anxiety or, of course, actively avoided. And selective mutism responds to typical phobia management. So that's my take on it. Lovely. Thank you, Maggie. I think, yeah, that was so eye-opening just to read those accounts out from the older children. It just, yeah, it's so much more, like, really powerful, just so much deeper than, like you say, just a, a failure to talk or I think a lot of maybe parents or teachers will perceive the child as being difficult or a bit shy. And that actually leads me on to my, my next question. For parents and teachers that are, are listening, could you please tell us a little bit about maybe the difference between a child with selective mutism and a child who's maybe just a bit more reserved or introverted or shy? And when does being quiet become an anxiety disorder? Well, I think this is a great question for many other professionals too. The GPs and health visitors, for example, as parents are often told not to worry, their child will improve. In my experience, most parents are very aware this isn't typical shyness. They see a real change come over their child when the child is aware that someone from outside their comfort zone is around. The child, you know, one moment they've been chatting away, being noisy, cheerful, just doing what all children do, and they suddenly still and become hypervigilant, just waiting for that person to leave. As soon as they become aware that there's someone else around, they either stop talking completely or they start to whisper. Mm. So selective mutism isn't just about not talking to certain people outside your comfort zone. It even affects the way children talk to their parents. Now, that just isn't the case for children who just have a quieter personality, if you like. They would, you know, if you're sitting in a waiting room talking to your mum and dad, you carry on talking to them as the waiting room fills up with other people. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's a good point. I was just thinking about children with a, a generally quieter personality. Parents of children with selective mutism typically describe their children as having two personalities. Okay. There's the real 
them, the real child that only their close friends and family see. And then there's this kind of frozen shell of a person that is tight and unresponsive and unable to express themselves. Most parents will tell you that their child isn't shy at all. It just appears that way to other people. And again, you don't get this marked contrast with children who are just a bit shy. Mm-hmm. It's very stark, th- this difference. But of course, most teachers aren't going to see that contrast. They're just going to see the quiet child who doesn't talk. But there is still a clear difference between children who have SM and children who are quiet for other reasons. Experience teachers will say it's all in the body language. Mm. Children with selective mutism, they really do freeze when there's an expectation to talk, while other children look much more natural. I mean, shy children, reserved children, they're not experiencing a phobic reaction after all. Mm -hmm. So even though you can't see the pounding heart and everything that's going on inside, you do see this stillness about the child. A child with selective mutism, you're likely to see quite a frozen facial expression. They just look blank. They have difficulty with movements that they can do perfectly well at home. So things like writing or running, for example, they can just seem that they can't, they're rooted to the spot, can't get going because they've just got such general anxiety about people talking to them at the same time. If I run over there, I don't know that teacher. She might ask me something. So the other thing you might say is at free time, they're just standing in a fixed position at the side of the playground, or they they just stand at the side of a sports hall and just find it literally hard to move. Mm. This freeze isn't just confined to the throat. The, The more of the body that's affected, the more anxious you know the child is. And the other thing you're going to see is that they often keep their heads down in case that making eye contact will lead to being asked questions. Mm. Once you make eye contact with someone, it really is an invitation to, hey, you know, I'm here, speak to me. So this is all part of the the avoidance that they try to practice. So just avoiding eye contact is one of them. And the other big difference you're going to see in particularly with young children, if you approach a child who's got SM and ask them questions, you might just be trying to be nice and find out, have they had a nice time? Did they have a nice birthday at the weekend and do something fun and so on? So you're just trying to help them engage. But children with SM, you can almost feel them recoil from you. Mm. Whereas shy children welcome one-to-one attention. That's when they're at their best. And They've got no difficulty talking if someone else makes the first move. It's just that they may not be very outgoing and feel confident enough to take the lead and and approach other people. And it's just one more thing I think is worth mentioning, because this point actually is crucial to making an accurate diagnosis of selective mutism. So it is something that, that teachers, classroom assistants, parents can be looking out for. What you're looking for is a consistent pattern of not talking. Mm -hmm. These children don't just have good days and bad days. It's not a mood disorder. It's not dependent on how they're feeling. They don't open up a bit one day, say nothing the next day. There's a very consistent pattern to it. 
but it all depends on the social situation. So, for example, they might talk to their classroom assistant with no problem at all if they're in a private room, if they're in you know, a resource room or something and the door's shut and they don't feel there's any chance of being overheard. They might talk to the classroom assistant at the corner of the playground when they're some distance from other people and when they've got their backs turned so that people can't see them talking. But then they'll stop as other people come closer or they won't talk to that classroom assistant when they're in the classroom with everyone else about. So it's not even about looking for consistency about who they talk to and who they don't. Mm -hmm. You're looking for a consistent pattern of social situations that you're exposed to. Oh, and that pattern is going to be consistent for at least a month. So it's not just they've just decided I don't like him, I'm not going to talk to him. And after a few days, they get bored with that. This is absolutely consistent. And it is persistent. It well, it goes on for at least a month. But you wouldn't count that first month when they first go into a new classroom or start at nursery or whatever. You always allow a month settling in period. Mm -hmm. But then if they, you know, once they've settled into school, they've had a month, if you then see this consistent pattern for a second month, that's when the diagnosis of selective mutism, or I'll probably refer to it as SM a -hmm. lot, then that's the point at which that diagnosis can be given. And of course, shy children, they do warm up. That's the big, big difference. They may not talk in that first month, but they will be talking to you within a few weeks. They do get used to a situation or strangers. They do start talking, whereas for the child with SM, it just goes on. Yeah, no, that, that's that's so helpful, Maggie. Thank you. And I think, yeah, for a, a lot of people listening, even myself, if I think about, for example, my younger sister, who was just a very shy introverted child but yeah there was definitely thinking about her interactions there was none of this like freeze behavior that you were talking about that they just seemed really rooted to the spot or head down she just like she would engage with you if you spoke to her but she wasn't outgoing or extroverted so I think that's so helpful so thank you very much for so clearly distinguishing between shy children and a child with SM. Oh excuse me Hope you know what you've said has just reminded me of something else There is an exception, and I have found particularly with children who are autistic and also also have SM, Mm -hmm. they are really good at switching this freeze off. They're really good at it because they make an absolute decision, I'm not going to talk. They discover how painful it is to talk, if you like. They go through exactly the same experience as any child with SM does, but they discover that if they don't try to talk, they feel fine. And of course, what you've done by telling yourself and telling your parents, I'm not going to talk, Mm -hmm. and being absolutely determined about it, there's no point trying to make me talk. What you've actually done is removed the expectation to talk. There's no expectation because you've decided you're not going to. And actually, you don't necessarily see the freeze with these children, not at school. They come Mm. in quite happily, they just don't talk. The parents will still notice that freeze, though, because there'll be times when they're chatting to the parents and then suddenly someone appears and that's when the child stops. So Mm. it's not that the freeze is gone. It's just that, you know, you can mask your SM simply by going into complete avoidance. But that's how we manage phobias, isn't it? If I've got Mm -hmm. a phobia 
of flying, well, then I'm going to get on Eurostar and then I'll be fine. I'll be perfectly happy. Yeah, (laughs) that's great. Thank you for adding that in, Maggie. And can I ask you a little bit about prevalence rates of SM? Is it likely to affect some children more than others? And I'm thinking here, maybe different sexes or genders of children or children from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Do you see any differences in prevalence rates there? Okay, so as a general rule, it's commonly stated that about one in 140 children will have selective mutism. But that figure was derived from research studies involving primary school populations. Other studies, they show the rates to be much higher in preschool settings and, again, lower in secondary school settings, decreasing to no less than one in 2,400 adults. But that is still an awful lot of adults Mm. in this country who have got selective mutism. Yeah. It's generally accepted, though, that these figures are underestimates and many children and adults are going under the radar. To give you an idea, when we run training sessions, information days for parents and school staff, Typical feedback that we get from um, school staff is that they came on the training day because they've been assigned to mentor a particular child or they've got a child with SM in their class. So they came along concerned about one child. But now that they've learned how selective mutism presents and you can talk at school, it's just that you don't in many situations, they then put in their feedback... I'm going to go back and check because actually I think we've got two or three other children who might have SM as well. Mm-hmm. So there are, I think, a lot of children going undiagnosed. So that's that's sort of the general, those are the general figures. It's certainly as common as autism. And, you know, everyone in this country has heard of autism, but certainly not everyone has heard of selective mutism. Mm-hmm. In terms of looking at different groups of children, It's clear that selective mutism, it occurs across all cultures and all socioeconomic groups. I don't think any studies have shown any significant differences there. But we do see some differences. Just about every study done shows that more girls than boys are affected. And that is exactly what you'd expect because it aligns selective mutism with anxiety disorders rather than neurodiverse conditions where you always have more boys than girls. So yeah, more girls than boys. And we also know that selective mutism is more prevalent in migrant and bilingual families, probably because it's so easy to avoid using the target language. People are going to make allowances for you. And without realising it, staff and families are actually maintaining the selective mutism. This is something I've not touched on yet. But We all know if you've got a phobia, avoidance doesn't help. The longer you put off facing your fear, the worse it gets. The other maintaining factor is any form of pressure. You know, if I've got a phobia of dogs, the last thing I need is someone saying, come on, Maggie, he's lovely. Why don't you stroke the dog? Come on, come on. So however nice you're being to me, no, I'm thinking get away from me, take it away. The more someone tries to get me to do it, Mm. the more someone encourages me to do it, the worse it gets. Mm -hmm. So 
the biggest part of education with families and staff is how not to maintain the SM through avoidance or pressure. Mm-hmm. Just avoidance of social situations, I should say. Obviously, you're going to avoid talking because that's going to be very difficult for you at first. But you can't gradually work towards that if you avoid the social situation altogether. And we do get a lot of avoidance in migrant and bilingual families. With bilingual families, the child avoids talking in the target language because perhaps one of the parents just talks to them in their home language in front Mm -hmm. of their friends. And with migrant families, we, we just assume, oh, they're not talking because... English is a new language. It's a second language for them. They're just learning and we just wait and wait and wait. And all the time we don't do anything to help. The SM is going on unrecognised. And the only other thing to mention, I think, is autism. I know I've already mentioned that, that we can have this dual diagnosis of autism. And recent studies are now showing that if you are autistic, you are more likely to develop selective mutism than if you're not autistic. They are separate things. We're not saying that they are linked in any way, very different diagnostic criteria. But if you're autistic, you are already of an anxious disposition. You do easily get thrown by things and you do become prone to developing phobias and fears. And you have a very rigid rule system, which actually sits very well in terms of extending selective mutism, because you can just become very determined to talk. And then people can just assume, oh, well, it's just the autism. That's the child being rigid. And they ignore the fact that you've got SM and it goes on and on untreated. Mm. I can certainly bear that out. You know, from my personal experience, lots of children on my caseload have had a dual diagnosis of autism and selective mutism. But the good news is that we just treat the SM in exactly the same way as Mm -hmm. with any other child. And funnily enough, autistic children can respond much more quickly Mm. because they love the fact that all the treatment is just incredibly logical. It's just straightforward phobia management. It just makes sense and it suits the way they think. Yeah, that's great. That's really interesting. Thank you. And just as we're we're talking about diagnoses and, and diagnostic criteria, I understand through reading some of your other pieces of information and work that selective mutism or SM was was introduced into the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, which we use quite a lot in clinical settings in the 1980s. And can you talk us through then how it's changed over the years? I know you've seen, and actually I believe you, I would vote for the change to move it more into a phobia rather than an anxiety disorder, but I believe it's still sitting in the anxiety disorder settings at the moment. So if you could just talk us through the change from 1980 to present day, the change in diagnosis of SM, that would be great. Sure. Oh, and I wouldn't want to change the current classification of it as being under anxiety disorders because one of the things listed under anxiety disorders is specific phobia. So all I'm saying is that SM can also be viewed as a phobia. I don't believe it is a specific phobia in the same Mm -hmm. sense as with specific phobias, the trigger is going to be a particular object or event. Mm -hmm. 
with SM, we're not being nearly as specific as that. The, the trigger is the expectation to talk. Mm. That is going to change from person to person, how they behave, what the background is. It's bearing on so many factors. So I believe it's in exactly the right place. It is an anxiety disorder and it sits there alongside things like panic disorder, specific phobias, agoraphobia and so on. But anyway, that's where we are now. That's all DSM-5 that was published in 2013. Mm. If we go back to the 80s, you're quite right. This was the first time it officially went into the DSM classification system. This was DSM-3 and it was called elective mutism then. Mm. It was truly believed that this was a choice that children were making and it was described then as persistent refusal to speak in certain social situations. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of misunderstanding about it. But over the next decade, a lot more research was done and by the time DSM-4 was published in 1994, there was a change. It was now described as consistent failure to talk in specific social situations. Mm -hmm. And that's where the term selective comes from. Because in the medical world, selective means specific, mm -hmm. you know, um, affecting some things but not others. And it was now widely recognised that this failure to speak was associated with anxiety rather than it being a deliberate choice. And therefore, they wanted to reflect this in a change of name. So in their wisdom, they chose the name selective mutism. Unfortunately, that was not very helpful, as it turns out, because you know, most people, not just lay people, but, you know, professionals as well, they're going to associate the word selective with choice, yeah. which is exactly what it is not. Mm -hmm. So things have moved on a little bit since then. Yes, in 2013, we had the publication of DSM-5. Potentially, there was a big, big hiccup there, because before it was published, there's always a big consultation, about a two-year consultation period before a new edition is produced. And I was part of that consultation process. And it was first suggested, when we saw the, the consultation draft, it was actually SM had disappeared. We couldn't see it anywhere. Wow. And it had been suggested that SM was removed as a standalone diagnosis because it was a, there was a hypothesis, nothing more, a hypothesis that it was a childhood variant of social anxiety disorder. Now, wow. that had previously been known as social phobia in DSM-4, mm -hmm. but it was now going to be renamed as social anxiety disorder. And it was being suggested that SM was um, a childhood variant of this. But I mean, that was just so ridiculous. It's like suggesting that someone with a phobia of dogs actually has a phobia of parks simply because they avoid parks <laughs> yeah you know and obviously all children with sm are socially anxious of course yeah. they will be because yeah it's in social situations that their phobia might be triggered it, but this doesn't mean they've got social anxiety disorder the diagnostic criteria are completely different so, yes, I got involved with this task force and provided a lot of evidence to refute this suggestion. And luckily, we were successful and it was completely thrown out. So 
when we saw the the final publication of DSM-5, we were much relieved to mm. see selective mutism was back with the same wording as DSM-4, consistent failure to talk in specific social situations. And the only difference was, as you've said, it was now listed under this new category of anxiety disorders, which we've all welcomed. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that prior to 2013, there was not a category for anxiety disorders. I I find that really hard to believe. I do welcome this, partly because it is an anxiety disorder. I I think it's correct. But it's also made it so much easier for adults to get Mm. a diagnosis of SM now because it's listed there alongside all the other anxiety disorders which are you know much more common in adults than children. Brilliant thank you and I'm familiar with the process and I think my background and expertise in trauma and PTSD it's gone through a a similar evolution through the DSM uh, versions yeah definitely. (laughs) So yeah it's interesting to hear and amazing to hear that you were part of the panel to argue for the change or to make sure that it was in with the anxiety disorders for DSM-5 so that was amazing. And actually just moving on, I think we've covered a few of these already while we've been talking, but I know that you'd said, you know, which is, and I'm guilty of this as well, when you hear selective, you do think like it's a choice. So I would say that is probably one of the misunderstandings around SM. But what would you say are the main misunderstandings around selective mutism? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. That is the main one. And it would be so much better if SM could be renamed as situational mutism, Mm. wouldn't it? When I get involved in the task force for DSM-6, (laughs) that's what I'm going to push for. Brilliant. (laughs) And also making it much, much clearer that you can have a dual diagnosis of autism Mm. and selective mutism. We need to sort that out. Um, Luckily, ICD-11 is very clear that you can have a dual diagnosis, so we can sit on that for the time being. So, yes, lots of misunderstandings. I think we've, we've also touched on this one, that selective mutism is a form of extreme shyness caused mm. by social anxiety. You know, most children who have SM, they're, they're not shy. Their families see this. And when the children get over their SM, everyone else sees this too. But I think there's a, there's a general thing here that needs thinking about. SM is not caused by anxiety. People think it's an anxiety disorder, therefore it's caused by anxiety. It's not caused by anxiety. Mm. It's caused by fear conditioning. That's the psychological process that leads to a phobia. And in fact, it's the other way around. It's having SM that causes you anxiety, Mm -hmm. huge amounts of anxiety. But yes, you wouldn't say that a phobia of dogs is caused by anxiety you know it's not that I I go into a house and I'm such an anxious person I'm worried about oh have I got the right clothing and this anxiety is causing my it's not it's just that dogs do it you know dogs trigger this ridiculous almost you know irrational reaction in me and I don't understand it and I can't do anything about it it's not that I'm sitting there thinking about it no it is this automatic process as a result of fear conditioning So yes, it's not a form of extreme shyness or caused by social anxiety. Other misunderstandings around SM are that it's triggered by a traumatic experience or it arises in dysfunctional families. And I still come across professionals who believe that these children remain silent on purpose in order to control others. And that is such a... (laughs) 
such a cruel misunderstanding. Mm. And I've seen this. Children and adults can spend years in, in completely useless and I would say potentially harmful therapy yeah. as a result of that misunderstanding. Uh, well, I'm going to say ignorance. Mm. Yeah. More than misunderstanding, that is simple ignorance. And, you know, that's my big focus at the moment really is just is trying to spread the word you know across the globe because we've got you know we're we're doing relatively well in the UK but children in other countries are not nearly so lucky yeah no that's really helpful thank you and I know you you touched on it there when we were chatting about prevalence and you'd said actually you'd see increased prevalence rates maybe in preschool and it it decreased more so in secondary school although we where those numbers are maybe getting taken with a pinch of salt because it might be there are some undiagnosed SM there but my question is do you think it's possible and I'm sure people have asked you this before uh, for children to and I'm going to put it in inverted quotes outgrow uh, selective mutism yeah people do ask that and in a word no no they don't outgrow selective mutism but most children do overcome it you know as you've said as the prevalence rates show they do most children do overcome it I think the point is that no one outgrows a fear or a phobia it's not just a matter of maturation they work through that fear with the right support and some will get there sooner than others some will work through it with professional support some with just the right you know sympathetic parental support some with the support of of this wonderful member of staff who just got it and some young people get through it with their own determination to achieve a life goal but however however they did it they had to face their fear and gradually work through it by taking small steps and showing their brain that there was no threat this is why it's called an anxiety disorder Mm -hmm. because your anxiety mechanism which is there to keep us safe it's become disordered and it is Mm -hmm. telling you there is a threat to you where there isn't one and by doing this by facing their fear and showing their brain there was no threat they extinguished the fight flight freeze response so no i wouldn't describe that as outgrowing it i think you know we we pat them all on the back and their families and teachers and the professionals who have supported them along the way Excellent. And I know that we're going to, as we kind of move through the podcast, going to chat a little bit about some of those success stories, actually, and and hear some of those those stories that you've had in your professional practice. So look forward to hearing those in a, in a little bit. I feel like this final question before we get on to talking about your upcoming book, I think could be a podcast in itself, probably. But I'm just curious because I know from previous work with colleagues and myself and we did some work around the pandemic and children with special educational needs and intellectual disabilities and how actually that had really affected them in terms of services stopping and respite services and lots of other difficulties arising through the pandemic for them as a as a group and I just was wondering what your opinion was on whether the pandemic had had any effect on children with SM? Well, I just think it's affected all children to some extent, not just the children in the groups you're describing, but, you know, every child. It's not just children with SM, and it may even have had less of an effect on children with SM because they were already socially isolated. They may have been going to school, but 
they weren't being included in activities, they were playing on their own, well, standing on their own at playtime. You know, actually, I came across two distinct patterns here. There were a lot of children and families who really enjoyed the break and the pandemic was great it for them. It was mm. almost like respite for the children who had been struggling going to school. Teachers just don't see this mm. struggle all the time. They see a child who's just sitting there trying not to draw any attention to themselves because that would mean someone will come over and say, are you all right? Do you want any help? You know, asking questions. And it's that feeling of, oh, I've got to say something that just triggers this ghastly response. So they just try not to cause trouble. But inside, they are definitely feeling the stress of it. And, you know, getting home is is like, for most of the children, you know, that's their absolute respite. So I know lots of families who really enjoyed the pandemic, actually. The trouble was that then it could be even harder to go back to school, you know, so that, that was the issue. But then I think that is always the same for any child with SM. How do you join a new social club? How do you join a new school? This is nothing mm-hmm. new for families and children with SM. I'm not trying to minimise the difficulties. I, I'm just actually, if anything, just saying what was awful for so many children was actually already happening for children with SM, you know. But then there was also another pattern that was just totally positive. And these were the families who finally discovered Zoom. And um, in the very first manual that I wrote with my friend and co-author, Alison Winchens, the Selective Mutism Resource Manual, we had taught, now that that was published around... Mm-hmm. 2000 the year 2000 and we'd spoken about using Skype and it makes me laugh now because who you know <laughs> who's heard of Skype anymore but yeah we we put mm-hmm. Skype in there and we we knew that you know the use of webcams could be a really useful stepping stone to talking face to face so we gave some examples of that but it was only one like on one page of the manual and there were lots of other things to try as well so i think people forgot about it but when the pandemic hit and we were continuing to support families Mm -hmm. in kent where i work that was the thing we said right now is your chance to pull this out of the bag and we sort of wrote extra advice to them on you know how to have zoom calls with friends and family members taking Mm -hmm. it in small steps you know the child can talk through the parents to start with or they can just sit off camera to start with play fun games and they the child will just gradually get closer Mm -hmm. and join in and you know we we set it all out for them and we just had lovely lovely feedback parents saying that the child was talking to extended relatives for the first time talking to more people that they've ever spoken to before and particularly useful for building up playing games with friends who then they did speak to when those friends came round you know to play and have have tea as as we started coming out of the pandemic and the really lucky families found that the school was very happy to buy into this as well So schools were offering, obviously, online teaching sessions. They could include the children with SM. And to start with, those children would be allowed to have their mics off first and things like that. Gradually join in. But most importantly, we recommended an individual sessions with their classroom 
tutor or teacher, you know, just five or 10 minutes. Again, enjoyable activities with the family, making it fun. Once they've got those first words out, the thing with phobias is as it starts to lift, it's it's such a wonderful release, mm. a wonderful feeling. You've just got to kind of convince yourself it's possible and just wait it out, push it out, just try it, do it. You do it a few times and mm-hmm. suddenly the brain gives up, you know, and stops switching on this alarm system, this internal alarm system it's got. And suddenly the children were just talking. And yeah, yes, then if the class, the same member of staff met them at school afterwards, first just for a few minutes on their own to do something maybe with the parent, maybe without, then the child now gradually starts talking to them in the classroom with other people around. So we did have some really good stories as well. So I guess it really all depended on whether you had the information you needed on how to manage SM generally. Mm-hmm. You could then use that within the pandemic and, and make it work for you. Lovely. Thank you, Maggie. And actually, speaking of being armed with all the information you need about selective mutism, your upcoming book, the Selective Mutism Workbook for Parents and Professionals, focuses on a number of activities which include but aren't limited to things like using the toilet at school, social gatherings, play dates and talking in the classroom. And are these in your experience, kind of the most commonly difficult tasks for children with SM? Well, any activity where you're expected to talk to people for the first time is difficult mm. for someone with SM. And and the more people there are around, the harder it will be. So yes, obviously the workbook is going to focus on social gatherings, talking at school, and and any situation where you need to talk in order to meet your needs, like asking to go to the toilet. But I wouldn't necessarily say that these things are the most difficult. It's just that they're the most important to maintain the child's self-esteem. It's just so important that that child feels included, that they feel valued, that they avoid the public humiliation of wetting themselves, for heaven's sake. So, I just think life is difficult if you've got SM, full stop. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on the most important things you need to actually, let's focus on your well-being. That's what it was all about. So some of the activities are there because they're the most useful and will most quickly target your well-being. They're there because they're useful, not because they're the most difficult. And things like play dates, I think you listed that there. That's not one of the most difficult things. I would say that's one of the easier things. But it's there because it is so useful. It's a fantastic stepping stone, building friendships out of school mm-hmm. and being able to talk to your friends out of school. And other activities like just knowing how to welcome a child when they start at school or start a new social activity. These activities aren't just for the children. A lot of these activities are for the staff who run them or the relatives who are having the child over for tea, you know, that that idea. But it's, it's activities like that, knowing how to welcome a child, make them feel at home and enable them to participate, not necessarily talking at first, but just taking part. 
Things like that are incredibly important and are going to make all the difference between a child continuing to attend that activity or going back to their friends for tea another time. And then once they're attending, then just gradually talking. Because if you can't achieve that, then you may see that same child opting out and not wanting to return. And I was really lucky. We When I say we, I wrote the workbook, which is a companion to the manual that I mentioned before. But this is a much more practical manual that, you know, parents and teachers can just use in their day to day activities Mm -hmm. rather than having to wade through a whole manual that covers every single age group and all the information you'd ever need about SM. So this workbook I wrote with a Chinese-American woman called Yunhua Reitman. She's a chairman of the Chinese Association for Selective Mutism. And she contacted me, you know, with this great idea of the workbook. And I was just so lucky to have a whole team of parents and teachers literally across the globe that June was working with and that, um, or that I was working with. And it was that team, they let us know what their challenges were. And we whittled down their suggestions and we whittled down my suggestions for supporting them. And we got it all down to 15 foundation strategies and 43 activities. Each of these is a worksheet and it's just broken down into simple steps that you can integrate into your your daily routine. Mm. So yes, in the end, the, the criteria for you know, putting it in the workbook was parents saying, this is what we need. And they reviewed everything we did and just said, oh, this is going to be so helpful. Oh, if only I'd had this two years ago and that sort of thing. So I could not have done it without that team. I have to say it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Oh, Oh, to get everything you know into these standalone worksheets. Yeah. All of those strategies and activities, each one is a standalone worksheet with everything you need to know about how to help your child get through this and eventually talk so that you don't have to keep dipping back into different parts of the manual. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounded such a simple idea, but when I started, I realized, wow, this is actually incredibly complex. But we did it. You've and I have it. to say, it was probably the most satisfying thing I ever did, you know, to, to manage to get that done. Yeah, no, it sounds fantastic. And I, I really love the ideas you've incorporated in, in terms of that, that holistic view of it's not just the child, but it's also the parent and it's also the teachers and the relatives. Everyone gets involved. And like you say, that really practical help with the worksheets, I think is great. Because I think parents are always looking for kind of tangible things that are practical that they can work through. So no, that all sounds fantastic. This interview with Maggie Johnson and Hope Christie continues in part two. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.